So a huge hello to Leonora. Hello. 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 Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining me. And how are you? How are you faring? You're obviously down in Cornwall. You're not far from me in Devon. How are you coping in the heat? Um, well, I think it's finally broken today, which is actually quite a relief. But um, it has been really lovely, really nice to just bask for the last few days. Oh, my goodness. Do you get to kind of because I guess a bit like us, it's quite a touristy area. People come down. Is it kind of nice to be able to get a bit of home back and make the most of it? Actually, I live in a very um, isolated place. I can't actually see a road from where I live. And uh, I'm just surrounded by chickens and, and sheep. So I so really nowadays the summers do pass me by. But I used to live in a in a seaside, you know, in a in a little cove. And then that was really busy in the summer. Yeah. So it's quite nice now because I can just uh, if I don't actually go anywhere in the car, then I don't I don't know anything what, what's going on in the outside world. Oh, I love that. Now, a very neat segue here. Not that neat. But obviously I've mentioned that you live in Cornwall and your latest novel, Scarlet Town, we're being transported to Cornwall. So first and foremost, we're going to kick things off for anyone listening who might have read Black Drop or Blue Water or perhaps is new to your work. Tell us a little bit about what Scarlet Town is about. OK, well, it's the um, it's the third novel in my Lawrence Jago series, which um, uh, Lawrence Jago is a, at the beginning of Black Drop. He's a foreign office clerk living in London, uh, transplanted from Cornwall. He's his um his dad's a Cornish farmer, and un- unknown to his employers, his mum is French. They met through some kind of s- smuggling shenanigans, you know, between France and Cornwall in the past. Um, so anyway, so at the beginning of Black Drop, he's kind of a bit um he's a bit uh, dislocated, you know, he's living in this horrible city and uh, missing home, and also having to hide the fact that he's got a French mum because Britain and France have just gone to war, uh, and being a bit indiscreet and saying things he shouldn't do so at the end of black drop he leaves london and he goes is is sent on a ship to america with a treaty that was being negotiated during black during the story of black drop um and so he so blue water set at sea on a on a packet ship a post office ship that takes the mail from uh, actually from Falmouth in Cornwall to America. Falmouth was the main kind of American port at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in Scarlet Town, um, we've kind of skipped a year. We don't really know what he's been up to in America, but he's coming back uh, because his his sidekick William Philpot, who's a kind of very combative and bonkers journalist. Has, um, has libeled someone in America so badly that they're going to um, get put in jail. So they they skip America and they've come back to Cornwall in a in a hurry. And when they turn up in Cornwall at the beginning of Scarlet Town, they come to Lawrence's hometown of Helston, which is also my hometown, and um, discover that a, a general election's in progress. And um, Helston's always been a, a rotten borough or to be more accurate, really, a pocket borough. It's always been a place where the two voters that um, remain in the town of of 2,000 people um, have always voted the way the the Duke of Leeds has told them to. Mm. Uh, And at the the beginning, when they they turn up in Helston, they discover that something's going on because suddenly there's uh, political meetings and lots of conflict. And it turns out that um, another faction in the town have put up have set themselves up as rivals to the Duke and produce their own candidates and their own voters. And, and basically there's war on. So they turn up in the middle of a political meeting. So that's the kind of um, scenario at the beginning of the book. 
And in the sort of opening note in the book, this is based on kind of a true story, right? Of something that took place in in your town. Yes. So um, it actually is even it was even more ridiculous uh, in a way in in real life because um, there was only one voter, <laughs> and, and he was um, and he was eighty. Uh, so there had been there had been six. Well, yeah, there had been six for about the previous twenty years, but they'd gradually been dying because they were getting older and older. So um, so in real life, they were down to the very last voter at the time of this particular election. Um, but I kept it that there were two because it just um, added a bit of uh, a bit more conflict and a bit more intrigue for the story. So um, so what, what had happened was that um, about um, the, the, the voting system in that period was chaos. Um, I was going to say, I can't imagine when you say one voter or two, but it's very hard to wrap your head especially in this day and age, to understand what that meant. Yeah, well, up until there was there was a first reform bill in 1832, which was like 30 years after this story. And there was another one in the 1860s and another one in the 1880s and another one in 1914 or something. And gradually the vote got extended more and more to more and more people. But at this point, they were really working on um, an, an electoral system that had been in place since the time of Elizabeth I. So she'd given Helston its charter to be a town and appoint a mayor and alderman and freeman who kind of basically ran the town. Um, and it hadn't really changed. Basically, at that point, the 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 um the franchise vote was given to the freemen of the town. And they were the people that would that would that would vote on behalf of everybody in the town. But um over the course of the centuries since, it had become horrendously corrupt. And the um, and the freemen were basically appointed by the mayor and aldermen, so they just appointed their own friends and families. And there was um, a great there was a great kind of conflict between a couple of the local families, and they were permanently jockeying and uh, trying to vote each other out. And they'd refuse the, the mayor would refuse to stand down, and the aldermen would have secret votes, you know, when no one was looking to to kind of get their own way. So the whole thing was a mess. And about twenty years before. Um, the, the, the start of Scarlet Town, they'd all gone to court. Basically, it, it's a bit like, you know, in America at the moment, their kind of politics was conducted through the courts. Right. So they kept so so they um, so a, a rival faction set itself up and said or one of the factions said that the other faction had been kind of illegally appointing freemen for years. And it, it went to it went to the courts and it went to Parliament. And in the end, they decided to strike off all the freemen that had been appointed in the previous 20 years because they decided that they had been um, uh, oh. appointed in the wrong way. And the only ones that were left that they thought hadn't been improperly appointed were six voters. And they um, and they uh, basically the Parliament said that until they died, they would continue to be the voters. So. Uh, of course they did die you know over the years yeah. so by the time of the so by the time of the novel there was only two left in my book one in reality oh my goodness and I find it incredible because obviously you've got three books now set you know roughly around the same time periods but very different places you've got very very different political factions going on across the seas and across the country it must be an awful lot of research for you to tackle with each book um well, I suppose each one's been different. Uh, yeah. The reason that I, I wrote Black Drop in the first place was that it was a period that I'd spent about 10 or 15 years researching as a kind of part of an academic career. So I'd done a PhD on an MA and a PhD on, on this particular political journalist of the time called William Cobbett, who is my mm -hmm. is in my book, the version of him is William Philpott. Um, 
So I'd I'd sort of spent 10 years immersed in reading newspaper articles. So really, um, the actual the actual overall mindset of the times and the and the sort of general political situation, I, you know, felt very comfortable with and I still do. And, you know, so that's not such a problem. But but obviously, each book presents problems of actually having to imagine the reality, the day to day life of of the world that you're in. So, you know, you only start you only write for about 10 minutes before you realize you need to look something up because you don't know what people will be eating or what they'd be wearing or what time they'd be eating or something. And then of course, um, in blue water, setting it aboard a ship was a bit of a, um, a challenge. You know, I wondered if I'd be able to do it, but I absolutely love uh, naval fiction. I love Hornblower and particularly Patrick O'Brien's um, 20 books about, about the Navy in, in that period. So which I'd read about, I think I'd read the series about three times. So in the end, I just thought, you know, I'm going to uh, risk it and have a go. So, right. so and then and then with Scarlet Town, I, I did a lot of um, looking into the local censuses and the local town plans and things like that to try and get an idea of what the town had been like 200 years ago, 250 mm-hmm. years ago, or whatever it is. Um, so, uh, so, you know, there are, there is kind of specific research tasks with each book, but within the context of, of feeling pretty at home in the overall period. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I've always lived in the Southwest. I lived in Dorset to begin with and then emigrated to Devon. But, you know, I always try and imagine what it must have been like, you know, how different life was in these rural areas. How different was it back then to how we picture it now? I think it was, um, I mean, the really funny thing about it is that Helston, which is a, a very small town, um, and lots of other very small towns in Cornwall sent 40 MPs to Parliament between them. And the reason was that they were actually, in the 18th century, before the Industrial Revolution, Cornwall, and Cornwall was the one of the industrial heartlands of the country because of mining. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, the big, the big northern industrial towns didn't exist. They were villages. They didn't have any MPs at all. They were just kind of, you know, like hills and sheep. So... That's one of the things that's very different because you sort of think, you know, now it just seems laughable that Cornwall should should send that many MPs and have that much power and have, you know, the whole place was full of noblemen fighting over patronage of the towns and, and, yeah. and thereby getting their own candidates into Parliament. So in my in Scarlet Town, the um, the two candidates that um, the Duke of Leeds puts up for the, the candidate that the Duke of Leeds puts, puts up for, for um, election is his. Um, under secretary in the Foreign Office, and the opponent's um, candidate is the chairman of the East India Company. So you know they're like these huge behemoths, yeah. these huge uh, important um, people, and they're and then they're all kind of centred on Cornwall because it's because it, it's an important place. So I think that's that's one of the the main things that you have to kind of get your head around at the time. And the other thing is, I suppose, is access because uh, getting anywhere by road was so difficult so I think the sea was a lot more important kind of moving around by sea but like I say Falmouth was where the where the um the packet ships went from to America so you know it was it was at the heart of everything really yeah and I I didn't know that about Falmouth either and I think I say for someone who's always lived in the southwest nowadays we're kind of seen as like we're kind of tucked in the corner Cornwall's kind of down there people say you know it's the hardest part of the country to get to and you're miles out of everything whereas once one time like you say it it was the center of everything in lots of ways yes well certainly um the south you know because the north was basically 
very underpopulated and you know it, the, the world kind of switched around at the beginning of the beginning middle of the 19th century all the population moved north and um Cobbett my my journalist that I that I um sort of did my research on you know he was bemoaning the fact that that the south was just being depopulated and yeah uh, because they were all heading north so so it was just a kind of you know a total switch around in that period yeah and when you started writing Lawrence's story uh, way back with Black Drop. We did you always know that this was going to be kind of part of a series? Did you imagine that to begin with? Did you see it as a standalone that kind of developed? Where did this kind of begin? It began in a terribly muddled way. I, I uh, it took me about two or three years to really get Black Drop into any kind of shape that anyone was interested in in looking at because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. I want, knew I wanted to write about the period, and I knew I wanted to write about the politics because. It was a really important time. The French Revolution had just happened and the British government was having a meltdown thinking that something similar might happen here. So there was loads of repression, loads of extraordinary events, lots of really interesting debate about, you know, how the world should be a really exciting time. So I knew I wanted to write about that. But I am um, I I really because I'd been so immersed in that period, I hadn't really read a, a whole load of contemporary fiction. And I, I'd always wanted to write, but I tended to read like 19th century novels, 18th century novels. Yeah. So when I came to think about how how I wanted to write about 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 the period, I um I came and looked at what was going on in, in contemporary historical fiction, and I noticed that there was loads of crime historical crime fiction. But yeah. I and I thought, oh well, that's obviously been done, so that's something I can't do. So I'll have to think of some other way of writing about. Yeah, what this. else it's am I going to do? I can't do that. <laughs> So I messed about for a couple of years until some agent kindly told me that actually, you know, the fact that there was lots of historical crime fiction meant that actually people liked that. In the, yep. I, it wasn't something that had been done, you know. So I, so it was at that point when I turned it into a historical crime um, novel that, that it really it, it kind of found its home. And I didn't really know it was going to be a series until I got my book deal when my editor suggested that we should think of it as a series. So she asked me to write she signed me up for two books and she asked me to write a sequel to it and I was delighted you know because um yeah it's always very sad to say goodbye to characters at the end of a book yeah so yeah so that's how that happened and then and then obviously um uh you know we were just kind of pressing on but my next book after Scarlet Town is a standalone actually we're having a little breather and then oh. I think we'll go back to the series after that hopefully I mean, that's the thing as well. When you've written a character and you're on, you know, three books now, it's a lot of time with those characters. And I think it's quite good sometimes to take a step away, work on something else and then come back to them maybe with like a fresh, fresh set of ideas or fresh eyes, because I guess it's quite easy to kind of get lost in these stories that you're writing with this one, you know, these one or two characters really focused. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think it has, I think it will, you know, it does, it's it's good to write in a different voice and, and be in a different setting and things. And uh, and um, uh, also, for me, I, I really wanted to prove to myself that I could write something else, because, you know, if you do write yeah. a series, you think, oh, but, you know, what happens if I ever want to write something else? Can I do it? So it's been quite, it's been great to actually bite the bullet and write something else and realise that, you know, there is life beyond Lawrence, so. Yeah. Are you writing in a similar sort of time period? Are you kind of going outside of it? I've gone about 25 years earlier. So it's not really, it is really still the same general period that yeah. I'm comfortable in. 
I wouldn't really want to try and write a historical novel in a period that I was I didn't know as well as this because really I I feel like I know this period just about as well as I know today Um, and the idea so it doesn't really you know the idea of actually writing something set in the second world war or the victorian period is terrifying to me (laughs) Um, i'm very impressed by people who can do that sort of thing and write in different periods so maybe i will one day but at the moment you know it's um yeah it's my so but i kind of push the envelope a bit by going back a bit a bit earlier and uh setting in a different place so yeah anyway see when i read black drop i mean i i love reading about the french revolution but always in france so whenever i've read about it the books i've always read are set in France and I don't think I realized quite as you said what was happening in in England at that time people you know you see kings being deposed and beheaded and people in the streets and I never really stopped to think about what was going on here I don't think it's something you read about in that time period people are like oh the French Revolution it was all going on over the sea and that's where all the good stuff was happening but I found it fascinating to find out what was going on here well I suppose it's like whenever there's a whenever there's a you know, America, I suppose, in the 50s had all the kind of reds under the bed, you know, sort of yeah. McCarthy kind of trials, real anxiety about the idea that communism could take hold in America. And it was very much the same, just exactly the same dynamic in the 1790s in England. Yeah, uh, I never thought about so, comparing it like that. So they, um, so, you know, they had been talking about these ridiculous electoral systems there had been talk about 10 years before the French Revolution, there'd been a lot of agitation for reform and to kind of modernise it and, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and extend the franchise to more people. Because basically, in most places, whether you had the vote or not, depended on you owning land. Because right. you know, that was seen as your kind of, the kind of passport to having a say about the country was that you actually owned a bit of it. Um, but there'd been a kind of uh, a sort of agitation to get to a point where where more people had the vote and that it was all more rational and, you know, reflected the current world instead of, you know, a, a, a hundreds of years ago world. But um, and uh, even Pitt, the younger, who was prime minister in the 1790s in Blackdrop and was the main kind of war hero prime minister against the French and was very repressive in the 1790s. Ten years earlier, he'd been he'd introduced legislation into Parliament trying to get parliamentary reform. So, you know, the world, it kind of, um, it just frightened the establishment so much that they they just kind of withdrew from all that, clamped right down on any, any dissent. Uh, oh. People tried to hang, draw and quarter them, which was even then seemed like a barbaric punishment, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> yes so, so you know it was uh it was just yeah it was a real panic yeah and that's what I mean I think the focus like you say I, I don't know a great deal about America with kind of the McCarthyism and but all the focus is over here but the world is still all panicking and I think that's where the really interesting stories are outside of the main tale we know is what was everybody else doing when the world was all for lack of a better term going shit you know what everyone else was you know it was all happening over there what was everybody else doing what was yeah. happening and that's yeah, what yeah. I love. And I think Scarlet Town is fascinating for me because I've grown up in the Southwest. And I think I find it very hard to imagine a world in which there's two voters. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> My brain, when I read that, I was like, what? That doesn't make any, yeah, really, none of it makes sense. But the really funny thing about it as well uh, is that everybody, you know, just because there were only two voters, it didn't mean the whole town wasn't absolutely, you know, so excited by it. So, you know, the whole town split into these two tribes. And um, because this had all originally happened in the 20 years earlier, 
they called themselves the Mohawks and the Cherokees because obviously the, the this original fight between these two factions in the yeah. town had happened during the American War of Independence. So there are these kind of, you know, these two kind of um, groups in the town who are at each other's throat and everybody's going to public meetings and uh, rioting, you know, and, and then and women as well, women who who don't have the vote at all, um, even if, you know, well, no one has the vote, actually, so it's yeah. hardly nothing. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, everybody, men and women, rich and poor, they're all involved, they're all excited, they all want to kind of, um, you know, have a say about it. So it's... um. And that was true, you know, really, I think throughout the country, not just in Helston, it was like, you know, people were, people were interested in it, even if they couldn't actually participate themselves. And it was always that. It was a good, it was a good opportunity for a punch up. And a well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, it sounds to me like this was like in their calendar, like this is when we get to riot, we get to have a punch yeah. up, we get to cause some problems. Oh, yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> and they, and they, of course they put on them, um, entertainment so in in scarlet town um the duke of leeds produces the toby the sapient hog the fortune telling pig who can uh, uh read and read and write and you know sort of uh we still do uh, that it makes me think of the world cup when we had the octopus that could tell how <laughs> what was going to happen in the world we are still fascinated by fortune telling animals <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. even now <laughs> Well, it was a bit of a toss-up because there were all sorts of fortune-telling animals at the time. There were fortune-telling horses. And I quite like that idea, you know, the horse very delicately putting out his hoof and picking up the alphabet cards, you know, to, to spell words. But I just thought a pig was a bit more... Uh, well, I've had pigs in the past, so I'm I'm quite attached to pigs. I do, I do like a pig. There's something about... I think people forget how intelligent pigs are. Yes. Well, they're basically they're living their life, and they're you're you're just an incidental, you know. They're just, they're, they're, just, they don't care. If you're a fortune telling pig, you and you know what's coming, you're fine. <laughs> yeah. You know what's coming your way. You're like, yeah. That's probably the best thing to be in that time period. If you're a pig, tell the future because then you're pretty safe. Yeah, although it might be a bit frightening the future if being a pig. <laughs> Although not if you're, well, not if you're, I believe that Stark. Toby was a was a celebrity. Nothing bad was ever going to happen to Toby. No. That's see, that's the thing. That's if you're going to be, especially in this time period, because let's face it, if you're a pig in this time period, you're going to be dinner. You're not a pet, so if you can tell the future, that's probably the best choice you can have for all yeah. animals. I'd say. Yeah, very sapient of him. Very wise. <laughs> very wise pig. And now look. We're going to move forward into your novel evening. And I'd like to hazard a guess that we're going to go for this time period that you're so familiar with. But I must say, I'm looking at your face and I'm thinking you might have a wild card here. Yeah. Well, certainly in terms of location, I'm I'm being pretty predictable, I think. Okay. Uh, okay. So where are we so, going to go? Okay. So um, I did think because I'm a bit of a recluse and I live in this very beautiful place and never go anywhere that I thought initially I thought well maybe I'll get everyone to come to me which would have been all right but then I thought no no I've got to be a bit more adventurous than that and I do go to London a few times a year now because of you know the books and everything so um I would like it I would like to have our dinner in Dennis Sever's house in Spitalfields I don't okay I have not tell me tell me more Dennis Sebber's house is an extraordinary place. You must go. It's um, it's it's in the East End. It's near the city of London, and it's a restored Spitalfields um cottage, Weaver's cottage, 
um, that was, I think the guy, I think Dennis Severs might have been American. He, um, But he lived there throughout, I think, the 60s and 70s. And his passion was to recreate um, wow. the house in its, in its, it, as though it was, you know, being lived in, in, in earlier periods. So, so through the house, there are like, there's a Victorian room and a Georgian room, which is where we're going. And um, there's an attic um, that's um, set up as though it was for a kind of poor weaver's family. Um, but what you do is, well, certainly what we did was you can visit at night and you are only allowed, they only allow in a couple of people at a time. So you have to wow. book a slot. You turn up and a guy opens the door by candlelight and you go in and you're not allowed to speak. So you have to go around the house in silence. And um, it's all candlelit. So some rooms are quite bright, but a lot of it is very dim. You go into the old kitchen, you go around the living rooms and then you go upstairs and that's when it gets really... Uh, I creepy. bet it's eerie, isn't it? It's, well, what they what they do is that it's like every room is as though people have just walked out. So there's half eaten food on the table. The beds are like rumpled Ooh. as though someone's just got out of bed. Uh, and I don't know if you've read um, Laura Purcell's novel, The Silent Companions. Oh, that, was... that that if that's what it reminds you of, that gave me nightmares. Well, it doesn't just remind me. There are silent companions there. Oh, no. That and you really... went at night. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It scared the living bejesus out of me. So we went. <laughs> it really was extremely eerie. And then you go up in this attic and there's all like, it was winter. So there were all like cold drafts coming through the roof because it wasn't insulated or anything. It was all just, you know, the original tiles on the roof. So um, so there's all these kind of cold, eerie breezes kind of blowing in and the candles fluttering. But anyway, but the um, but the Georgian, so that's, so I, and I, when I, before I really knew anything about publishing and how it worked, I had this fantasy of, of having my book launch for Black Drop there and having Lawrence, because the beginning of Black Drop, Lawrence is sitting in an attic um, writing his confession. So I had this fantasy about reading a bit of, you know, Black Drop in this attic, but it turns out that's not how things are done. But anyway, you have to have launches in bookshops. But um, but uh, anyways, but I've always had a yen to to go back to this house. And so um, so I so the, the Georgian dining room is really um, lovely. It's got um, it's got a blaze of beeswax candles and the smell of beeswax is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And because you're not speaking you all your other senses really kind of kick in I think that's why they make you go around in silence because you're not just chatting about things and not taking things really in really taking at, it in looking at everything in detail and there's like spilt snuff on the table you know that someone's left and there's a kind of half-filled pipes there's a wig hanging on a hook I think you know and, and the and the table's just got the kind of half-eaten dinner on it so 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 that's where I'm that's where I'd like to have the dinner party Okay, so we're going to commandeer. I'm assuming we're allowed to speak at your party. Uh, yes. I well, yes. Well, we better have, actually haven't thought of that. Yeah, well, we'll have to get a special dispensation from. Yeah, them. perhaps we'll have a little <laughs> silent time at the start, or perhaps if there's a tour of the house, that could be the. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I like the idea of this, though. I don't know if I want to go off and find a toilet alone, but. <laughs> I think you'd be lucky. I'm not sure there is one. <laughs> yeah, you'd be going outside or down the street or something. Actually, Again, one thing I really wanted to say about it is the one of the most amazing things about it actually was coming out afterwards because you came out of this this silent world full of all this sensory stuff, and then you walked out and immediately outside was Canary Wharf and all the all the city buildings, skyscrapers. And it was like walking. It was it was just as extraordinary to come out into this kind of Blade Runner 
futuristic to me anyways someone that lives in Cornwall almost like actual time travel you've literally stepped yeah, through time yes. yes so that was that was really amazing yeah it was a really fantastic I recommend oh, I it. I love that. I've, I'm right. I'm scribbling it down because I'm like, right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go to this. This sounds incredible. Um, for real, not just for an of evening. I would love this. Okay, so we're in our Georgian dining room. Who's the first yeah. person who's going to arrive? Well, basically, I sort of thought about it, and I thought about all the Im- impressive and intellectual people that I can invite. Uh, but then I thought, actually, I just want to laugh. So my first, my first two guests are Jeeves and Worcester. Oh, okay, okay. I'm my... breaking immediately straight out of the Georgians. Yeah, <laughs> straight, <laughs> straight out of that. Now, but also they would be quite at home. Yes, well. uh, Jeeves would probably disapprove of the mess and the spilt snuff. He'd be probably be going around tidying up, cleaning that mm-hmm. up. Yeah, he'd be getting that out of the way. I have such fond memories of Jeeves and Worcester. My grandparents used to watch it all the time, and I must—I was probably too young to be watching it, to be honest with you. But I do, I do love that dynamic as well because there's something about you get people like that. You can talk to them individually, but when they're together, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, yeah. I mean, I, there's so much to love about them. I've, we've just been rewatching the Hugh Laurie and and yeah. uh, Steve Fry versions, and um, and it's just you know you end every episode with kind of grinning, you know, which is a very nice way to spend uh, to end the evening. But um, but you know, it's just so lovely. The two things I really love are I love the way that these kind of brainless nincompoops of these you know aristocratic blokes. There's no malice at all in the way that they're presented. You know, it's like they're just so, so funny and so yeah. it's so innocent I suppose and um and you know and the fact that Bertie's absolutely if anyone suggests getting a job he kind of is like what? <laughs> you know which I very much um identify with you know and he's um and uh completely you know at, at, at home and he's comfortable in his skin you know he's an idiot and he gets everything wrong but he's 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 a very uh, genial idiot I think and then Jeeves you know I would love to have a Jeeves to kind of look after me and I think we all need it. I think, and also, where would poor Bertie be without Jeeves? Where would he be? What would happen to him? Well, <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, every single story is is Bertie thinking that he can solve a problem himself, and then discovering that it all goes hideously wrong and has to be rescued by Jeeves. So, yeah, that's the. Um, it doesn't bear thinking about. In fact, no. and, and half of London, all the drone club, you know, all the young men at the drones club, they're <laughs> all uh, Jeeves is sorting them all out because you know they're all hopeless yeah oh I, this is a good start this is a I can see you're going for fun here which I love and I do love like you say you can have all the intellectual in the conversation sometimes you just need fun yeah I think so yeah okay okay so will, who's gonna be next a bit more fun at the moment yeah it does uh next is well it is very much actually I, I maybe should have mixed these up a bit because the next two are probably in very much in the same vein but on the next three rather which is um uh jay harris and george from three men in a boat okay can just speak so they'll say they're just returned from their trip up the river (laughs) oh they're gonna be hungry then (laughs) yes yes yeah well all their all their efforts at at, at cooking on the boat are very ill ill fated so they'll probably be ready for a good ravenous oh goodness it'll be interesting to see how these five all work together as well in the same space yeah interesting yes yes well um 
I mean, they're they're not at all. They're not, they're they're although they're sort of in the same kind of vein of of you know comic um, young men, I suppose from from the sort of late nineteenth, early twentieth century. The the three men in a boat are like the eighteen eighties, I think. But um, although they're although they're similar in some ways, the great thing about three men in a boat is that they're constantly furious with each other. So you know, trying to put up a tent or cook a meal or pack the trunks to go off on their on their holidays it's just like that you know the, the, I think it's great really because I'm not sure it's it's I'm not sure there's a lot of it in fiction but you know it's so true that you just get the more the more close you are to someone the more furious you get with them yeah so especially when you're trying to do something you know watching someone else trying to untangle <laughs> a rope or something you know so it's all that kind of it's like observational comedy I suppose yeah, uh, they're going to need a Jeeves. I feel like they Jeeves is uh, going to yeah. not only be dealing with Bertie, he's going to be dealing yeah, with these yeah. guys as well. But Bertie will be full of good humour and what honus and they'll and they'll all be like furiously, you know, bickering. <laughs> oh, I don't feel like you're going to have to do very much this evening other than just sit no, back. No, my, my idea is to sit back and enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Watch what unfolds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you have any more guests coming? I have quite a few, yeah. I've got oh. um my next one is Dodie Smith. Uh, oh, okay. And I capture the castle. Yeah. So, um, so this is not characters. This is, this, I suppose. Well, yeah. I think it. I think it's. Um, I think it's the the author that I would have rather than the characters. I don't really want Cruella Deville, but maybe we can have her later as mm. a someone we don't want. But um, but yeah. So because um, you know, it's she's um, it's very interesting actually. I was looking up. I was looking them all up and and both the guy that wrote three men in a boat and pg woodhouse who wrote jeeves and dobie smith they all um were playwrights actually or um pg woodhouse wrote a lot of uh like um, musicals in in america actually on broadway um but they all you know it's all that kind of um comic kind of yeah. conversation that they're so good at so yeah so so dobie smith and then and then also i'm getting a bit less like um uh slapstick now I, I was kind of thinking about maybe Beatrix Potter because I think she oh. might be a, a soulmate for me because we both live in the middle of nowhere but yeah. again it's that, so she's a bit more like Dobie Smith it's that kind of more gentle humour I think which might bring the, the gentleman down a little bit as well it might help them yeah, to kind yeah, of yeah. remember themselves if things are getting a little too heated yeah yes yes, yes. I think they're ladies who can handle slightly oh they definitely are yeah I mean Beatrix Potter was amazing she um she like invented uh you know she made a Peter Rabbit toy that she sold she kind of invented uh, invented all the sort of um what do we call it the you know the merchandise yeah so she she was a really savvy very savvy operator yeah and I sort of thought about Jane Austen as well she's a bit frightening because she's quite sort of sharp (laughs) and and, uh, yeah she might be a little stern with them at gents yeah, but um, but again, you know, I think these women would all be kind of yeah, observing and making turning them into animals in Beatrix Potter's case. Yes, yeah, I love Beatrix Potter. That for me is such a nostalgic thing, and my little girl still has. She has all the Beatrix Potter books. I love it. I, I, and she's again, I'd love to meet. And a brilliant TV um thing of it that was done in the I don't know when it was the eighties or nineties. Yeah, um, I used to watch that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I mean, a bit like Cheese and Worcester, you know, you just sometimes get these TV adaptations that are so, so perfect. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I love 101 Dalmatians, the Disney film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yes. That's uh, Cruella de Vil. I think they did very well. And I actually love the Glenn Close Cruella de Vil, I have to I say. Haven't, I, haven't, I haven't seen the, the live action one. I can't. I, I, I can't do it. 
No, I'm too I'm too involved with the with the animated one. But I remember being more terrified because I was very little when you know when I saw it, and I remember being more terrified by that than virtually anything. Absolutely climbing under. I have to say, the the live action version is a bit you know it's quite Americanized. But Glenn Close's Cruella, you can tell she's having like the time of her life playing Cruella Deville. She gets so into it, and the costumes are incredible that they've made in real life. But you can see she's had a really fun time getting to play her because it's yeah, yeah, so yeah. spot on. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, there's nothing like playing a real baddie, is there? So, And there's nothing good about Cruella. There's no good no. there. No, no, no. Well, you know, she is Deville, isn't she? She is, she is. So you've got some formidable women joining, uh, gentle yeah. but firm, I'd say. Yeah, and I thought it'd be quite nice if I had Anne, Anne Elliot there from Persuasion because she and okay. I could just she's completely different, quite gentle, quite sort of um, you know um, retiring. So she and I could just kind of sit on one side and watch all these dazzling people. Yeah, I think that's going to be a bit of drama. There could be some interesting things happening. I imagine there'll be some wages and some bets being thrown yeah, out there. Definitely, definitely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly you might not be allowed back to this house. <laughs> no, no, it could. Yeah, well, well, yes. I mean, God knows what the, what state the place will be in when we're finished. No, is that your is that your guests? Is that everyone? That you uh, yes, I did have I did have one living person. If am I allowed oh, a living person? Of course you are. Absolutely. Which is um, Nina Stib, because um, I I wrote I read Man at the Helm. Her her um she's written a, a lot of books, sort of semi autobiographical, I think, about her unusual childhood and man at the helm is one of the funniest books that i've read in years and um it's about a, a very posh woman who gets divorced and has her two or three daughters with her and she um and she just you know doesn't really know how to live so the two daughters who are about eight or nine they decide that she's got to get married again because she can't cope you know a bit yeah. like Bertie Wooster, actually. Yeah. And um and she um and so they're they're constantly trying to engineer meetings with men and they're always hoping that her nipples will show through her dress because <laughs> they think that this will be absolutely, you know, if these men see her nipples, that that will be, work uh, wonders. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's uh, it's you know, it'll be it'll be sorted if that happens. So I think I think Nina Stib would be great fun. She would be just as funny as as um as Jeeves and Worcester and oh. and um, and the three men in a boat. And I also think that, you know, I think particularly Worcester would enjoy such a, a slightly risque kind of um, vibe, you know, because he's he's from the roaring 20s when anything went. And uh, Yeah. Oh, I think it's going to, I think it'll be a night of much laughter, actually. Yes. Well, hopefully, yes. I think so. Which obviously, we've already mentioned Cruella. It's probably not welcome, but is there anyone else you don't want to come along to the party? Well, Mr. McGregor, I wouldn't have him. No, oh, he... Mr. McGregor! <laughs> I'm sure he's well-meaning, but you know, there's anyone that's um, putting rabbits in sacks isn't is is Especially not rabbits in tiny jackets. And... <laughs> yeah, you know exactly, I mean? yeah. that's a special kind of that turns up in a coat. I'm thinking maybe I should let you go. <laughs> yes. yes, actually, we're in a constant battle with rabbits, not, but not 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 putting them in sacks. But yeah, it would be great <laughs> if I met them and they were all had jackets on. Yeah, would... so you wouldn't mind. If they would, if they would dress yeah. for the occasion, I think that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And then um, you and grow vegetables or anything like that. Rabbits are yeah. fiends. Yeah. Well, we we planted a we planted a vineyard actually, um, a little vineyard, and because m- my husband makes 
beverages for his business very nice. various kinds. And um, so we planted a little vineyard, um, and it's just really for, for for a laugh and for us. But um, but we finally we're going to get some wine this year. About five or six years since we planted it, but there, they always does take quite a long time to get vines, apparently, and to get grapes. But yeah. uh, but we were set back about three or four years by constant invasion of rabbits who who knew that they liked eating vine leaves. But then you know, stuffed vine leaves are very nice. So they are very nice. And again, if they'd worn dapper evening wear you wouldn't have minded so much <laughs> no well I quite like that idea yeah. 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 evening evenings out in the vineyard eating our vine leaves in, in tuxedos yeah I think that eat them away I mean that's Mr McGregor and Cruella de Vil I think are good choices is there anyone else you think would bring the mood down um well I don't know if you remember from Cheese and Worcester but there's Sir Roderick Glossop who is certainly um, uh-huh. thinks that Jeeves is is uh, well mad because that's his profession. Is he's a psychiatrist, and uh, and Jeeves spends a lot of time trying to persuade Roderick Glossop that Jeeves is mad in order so that he doesn't have to marry Sir Roderick's daughter. But um, but he would just be so disapproving. I couldn't be bothered with him. We don't need. It's not a place for psychiatrists either. I don't think. No, probably a dangerous place for them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very fair. I think you've considered your guests with who's not welcome. I think they're fair yep. choices. And Good. I uh, I like your evening. I think it's an evening of fun. Yes, that was the idea. Yeah. Which I do enjoy. And look, before I let you go and enjoy the rest of the evening, because I can see much like here, it's already getting dark. Because yeah. it's autumn now. But I have to ask if you're reading anything at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um. So, well, I've got three... Th- I've, I've, I, I listen to audiobooks constantly because I do a lot of knitting. So I've been working my way through all the Anthony Trollops and and uh, and, oh, yeah. and and Middlemarch again from the from uh, George Eliot's Middlemarch. These great long, in, immense nineteenth-century novels, which are great because you get like tw- twenty hours. You know, I was going to say that's a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's great. So I've been working my way through them, and loving that again. And Middlemarch is my favourite novel ever. Um, I'm also reading a oh now. I'm not going to be able to tell you the name of the author and this is terrible but I'm reading a proof from my publisher of a book called The Under History and the author's name is Karen something with two A's and I've forgotten her surname that's terrible uh anyway but that is it's the most intriguing book so I'm I'm very interested in that and then the next book I'm going to read is uh Shona McLean's The Winter List which is um another book in her Damien Seeker series Oh, um, and that sounds good for the changing weather that is hopefully coming. Yes, yeah. So that's so that's me set up with my three, yeah, three books. Shall I run off and find out the name of this author that if, I've been if you would like to? I can seamlessly. Okay, so I'm reading a, a proof from my publisher um, called The Under History by Karen Warren. She's um, she's an Australian writer. And I love that cover as well. Sorry, I'm just eyeballing. No, obviously, yeah. can't see this. Yeah, it's all about a it's all about a, an old house. Well, a rebuilt house um, for a house that burnt down. But anyway, um, I won't say too much. But it is one of the most intriguing books I've read for a long time. Oh, I'm going to, that's going on my list. So I'll keep my eyes peeled. And look, thank you so much for joining this evening. It's been lovely. Please remind me of the release date for Scarlet Town. It's the 5th of October. Which is not very far away. No, no. 
no it's about three weeks i think so yeah so i'm going to be going up to the big smoke again to oh it's a long trek as well (laughs) it is is a really long trek from where i am yes everyone says i'm very lucky actually because we have a direct line from painton to london i don't know why or who decided we were going to get one but we do i imagine it's because of plymouth but i'm very lucky so i know for you it's not quite as easy (laughs) It's um the train's fine. It's just it's an hour to get to the train because we've managed to live somewhere so completely remote. But anyway, that was our choice. Oh well, look, I love Scarlet Town. Congratulations! It's going to do fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me to chat all about your thank novel. Thank you evening. for having me. It's been great. It's been really good fun. <laughs>